Welcome to the Genealogy Gems Podcast. It's a show filled with family history research strategies and techniques, news and entertainment, and inspiration. And I'm your host, Lisa Louise Cook. Hello and welcome to Genealogy Gems Podcast episode number 206. Now this episode is a blast from the past with some content that I've created from a few of the first episodes of the Genealogy Gems Podcast. Uh, Those were episodes 1 through 20. Now, a few years ago, I removed them from the podcast feed because, you know, they were recorded back in the day when I had a $10 microphone, and I was still kind of figuring out the brand new world of podcasting. Well, the sound was really quiet. And of course, now years later, a lot of what I shared in those episodes has changed, uh, particularly the techie and the online stuff, right? genealogy industry news changes, and of course, websites change. So what I've done is I have cherry picked the most timeless, inspiring and fun segments to share with you today in this episode. And I'll add my own fresh commentary in between. I've really enjoyed this trip down memory lane, and my production team also appreciates when I do this occasionally, because it means a little less work for everyone, and a little bit of well-deserved summer vacation time. So the timing is especially good right now, because my audio editor, my daughter Vienna, is on maternity leave, and we are all sneaking as many moments as possible to be over at her house with her and Davy and Joey, and of course, little Emily Jane. So enjoy this episode, and I'll enjoy my new granddaughter. Before I play these segments, though, I want to share a couple of recent emails here in the Genealogy Gems mailbox. Here's one from Richard. Now he says, back in January, you had a letter and response to information contained in the 1940 census. Specifically, you spoke about page 61 and 81 being recorded at a later date than those with earlier page numbers. Thank you, thank you, thank you, he says. (laughs) As I'm going through my 1940 census, putting information for one of my family members into Evidentia, I realized this individual, my great-grandfather's daughter, Alice Ellen Holder, was on page 61B. Now, she'd been listed with names I did not recognize, and I could not figure this out when I first found the information. Then when doing this, I remembered your story. So after going back and doing some additional research, I think I've come to believe that Alice was probably living with her mother at the time. I went back and looked in the same census and found her mom in the same address and house number in page 10B. At the time, I knew Alice's mom and dad had been separated. It was not long after that they actually divorced. I could not figure out what had caused Alice to be separated from her family. Now I know, and I can actually include them as a household. Yay me! (laughs) Again, thank you for all the work you and your staff, family, do to assist all of us in our research. It was also great meeting you in person at the NGS conference. Well, you are so welcome, and I am really thrilled to have played a part in your breakthrough. And what is so cool is what Richard did. It's that he not only listened to the story on the podcast, but he took action, and he followed through. And you know, folks, that's what makes the difference. It totally makes the difference. So thank you so much, Richard, for writing in and sharing your story. The 1940 census tip has helped more than one Genealogy Gems listener. If you missed it, you can hear it in the episode 201. And I also published it on the blog. So I will have a link for that in the show notes. And that software that Richard mentions, Evidentia, it's designed to help genealogists organize and analyze their research discoveries. It's not family tree software. Instead, it's kind of a really neat way of organizing information based on names and relationships. So the focus is more on sources and the information that you find in them. 
Uh, if this sounds like something that would be interesting to you, head to the show notes for this episode 206. Just go to genealogygems.com, hover over podcast and click the Genealogy Gems podcast. Click on episode 206 and you'll find all the notes, of course, for this episode, but there'll be an, a link there for you to take you to Evidentia and you can download a free 14 day trial and kind of check it out. It's a pretty unique program, and it's one that uh, Richard seems to be having some good success with. I often share my blog stories on the Genealogy Gems Facebook page, where I get some great comments from some of our 10,000 followers. You know, I shared a post not long ago that summarized tips for using DNA to solve adoption mysteries, taken from an interview that our own Diane Souther did with Cece Moore from DNA Detectives. And I invited people to share their stories in the comments. And this one from Cheryl is incredible. She says, a few weeks ago, I had a close family first cousin match on Ancestry. She matched known cousins on both my paternal grandparents, which means she could only be the child of my father or uncle. Bottom line, after a who was where timeline, I went from 71 years as an only child to having a sister and an adoptee found out who her birth father was beyond thrilled. Wow, Cheryl, congratulations to you and your newfound sister. And gosh, thank you so much for sharing. I invite all of you to head over to facebook.com slash genealogy gems and join in on the conversation. You've probably found wonderful old photos and documents in your research, but that's not exactly exciting stuff to your kids and your grandkids. The truth is, the non-genealogists in our families aren't captivated by the same things we are. But you can change all that with Animoto.com. Start creating fabulous videos about your family history that they won't be able to resist. And you don't have to have any special skills. With Animoto, you drag and drop your files in, like photos and even video clips. Pick from their professional styles and huge music catalog, and voila, you've got an awesome video. I've made dozens of these, and my family loves them. Hey, my grandson didn't mention the Legos that I gave him for his birthday, but he did thank me for the video that I made. You've got to try this out for yourself. Visit Animoto.com. As I travel the world talking about genealogy, folks are always stopping me and asking for my advice on organizing and securing their family history research. And my standard answer is plant your family tree in your own backyard and share branches online. Planting your tree in your own backyard, it means keeping one master family tree in a software file right there on your own computer. That gives you ownership, control of privacy and security, and one central place to organize everything that you learn about your family. And of course, my software choice and the one that I use is Roots Magic. I find that its tree building tools are second to none. And with Roots Magic web hints, you can see what record hints are available on Family Search, Find My Past, and My Heritage. And now you have the ability to synchronize your Roots Magic database with your ancestry tree and get those ancestry.com web hints right there inside of Roots Magic. These are features that are really critical and they're exclusive to Roots Magic. So plant your tree today in Roots Magic and watch it grow. Get started at rootsmagic.com. talked a lot lately about creating short family history videos that you can share with your relatives, kind of like mini documentaries for your own who do you think you are kind of experience. The first family history videos I ever created were several years ago before do-it-yourself video services like Animono made it so easy. And I think that's one of the reasons I appreciate them so much. So it was really fun to listen to this next segment that I've got for you about creating a short family history book that became the foundation for the two-part video series that I did. And if you've 
struggled with how to condense an ancestor's story into a short video story, consider doing what I did first. Write it up as a short book. By the time you're finished, you'll have an excellent start on your own sort of screenplay, so to speak, because you will have created a narrative with pictures, right? So you'll also have a great little book that you can send to loved ones as a gift, and then you can use that as a springboard for your video. If you do eventually turn that story into a short video, of course, they'll love it even more because they'll already know the story that they will see sort of come to life on the screen. So let's blast to the past and talk about creating your own family history book. By now, you may have seen my videos, A Nurse in Training, Part 1 and Part 2, on YouTube. A Nurse in Training didn't actually start out as a video, but rather a book. I found that by breaking up my research into digestible chunks of time and self-publishing them in hardcover books, my extended family is able to understand and enjoy our family's history. I started self-publishing about a year ago. We don't live close to our families, so Christmas gifts have to be purchased ahead of time and shipped. Well, family history books turned out to be a fantastic way to start sharing some of my research findings in an affordable way that could be easily mailed to family. In the past, I've sent CDs full of documents and photographs, but in the end, they just didn't get looked at the way I hoped they would. I think there are several reasons for this. CDs are perceived as being something technical that it might be hard to use. And the material is kind of chopped up, you know, individual photos, documents, and they just didn't flow smoothly together to tell a particular story. I think they're also perceived as very time-consuming to sit down and really give the attention that they deserve. And lots of people find reading on a computer screen kind of irritating, (laughs) and they don't really uh, enjoy it. So even if they start out reading some of their documents, they very likely will give up on it or expect to try to finish it later. The solution? A good old-fashioned book. Books are still hard to beat for telling a story in words and pictures in an extremely easy-to-use way. But where to begin? Where do you begin the story? Where do you end it? That's really the big question. The temptation is to break it up by family, to tell the story of one generation of your family. Well, that's way too big. (laughs) The end product will end up being lots of dates and names and probably not a lot of room for much else. I wanted my family to get to know these particular people intimately. And that meant focusing in much closer than on an entire generation of my family. In the end, I started with my favorite ancestor, my grandmother. I've transcribed many years of her diaries as I talked about in episode number two. And one of the stories that really emerged out of them was her year spent in nurses training. I learned so much through her journal entries, and I knew I had a really good collection of photos from that period. And I had all the additional research that I did after the transcription. So I decided that my starting point would be her graduation from high school and her decision to enter the nursing field. By the time I had pulled everything together from 1930 to 1933, I had more than enough for a nice-sized book. It's really important to create your book with your customer in mind. And by customer, I mean your family member, the person who's going to be reading the book. So here are my top six tips for making your book fascinating to your reader. Number one, the book needs to convey an overall theme. Review all the available material that you have, and that will give you a sense of what that time period was like for your ancestor, what their goals were, what their experiences and emotions were. You don't need to include everything, just those words and those pictures that communicate that theme to the reader. In the case of a nurse in training, I wanted to communicate my grandmother as a young woman taking on a new adventure away from home with its funny times and deeply challenging times that ultimately led to this, you know, really warm and caring woman's successful career. And she just happened to meet her husband at the same time, which was an added bonus. 
So you don't need every scrap of research and every photo to get this theme across. It's your job to be a sharp editor and to pick out the critical pieces. Number two, it's got to be readable in one sitting. Like it or not, if it takes too long to read, they just won't. Strive to create a book that doesn't look intimidating. I create books that are just like 10 to 20 double-sided pages, which can give me up to about 40 pages of, of text and photos. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. People will be willing to pick up a thinner book off the coffee table. And if it's well done, they'll find that all of a sudden they finish the entire book without wanting to put it down. And hopefully they'll walk away with a sense of really having gotten to know that ancestor. If you're focusing in on one person's story, this size book should really hit the mark. Number three, it contains the best of the best of what you have. Now this goes back to conveying the theme of being a tough editor. My grandma had many funny stories, but there just wasn't room for all of them. I picked the best of the best. Anyone who reads the book should hopefully come away with the fact that she had a sense of humor and she could laugh at herself. So keep the content of your book focused and full of graphics and photos and including just the best of the best. If you can capture their interest in the first three pages, you're going to have them for the entire book. Number four, there are lots of photos and graphics. A picture is definitely worth a thousand words. And since words in this size book will be limited, photographs are going to be your best friend. If you're lacking in family photos, many of my previous podcasts will give you countless ideas for locating photos that are associated with your ancestors and that time frame. In a nurse in training, I included scanned images of skating rink tickets and programs, um, announcements from my grandma's scrapbook and journal pages that were in her own hand. These types of items really add texture and interest to your book, and they help the reader to see that you've really done your homework. The fifth tip for keeping your book fascinating is to keep it in chronological order. Now, this seems obvious, but it's really easy to get sidetracked and start going back and forth in time. Believe me, for the reader's sake, use dates and keep things in chronological order. You as the researcher, I know that you know this information backwards and forwards, but this is probably your reader's first exposure to it. So be gentle with them and keep it straightforward and simple. Your reader will thank you. And number six is quality. High quality, glossy pages, good image quality, and a hardcover binding all shout to the reader, I'm worth your time. Read me. For example, I had a drawing of Dameron Hospital, where my grandmother worked, that I found, but it was really a low-quality image, and it didn't translate well in the book. As much as I wanted to include it, I ended up leaving it out, and I'm really glad that I did. I gave copies of my book about my grandma to my mom and to my uncle. It was the first time in years that I've seen tears in my uncle's eyes. He loved it and no toaster or tie could have been a better gift. The following Christmas, I actually did a book about my father-in-law's World War II naval years, and I sent a copy to everyone in that side of the family. As I've been getting RSVPs back from my daughter's wedding, they are still bringing up that book and mentioning how much it meant to them. More than anything, they were actually really surprised to realize how little that they actually knew about their father's patriotic service. You know, it's really a joy to create these books as well as to give them. They've simulated wonderful family conversations, and I know that they're not going to end up in the next garage sale. Remember, your research can be fascinating and understandable to others in your family. It just takes a little creativity and effort. Now, what good is your research doing sitting on a shelf? And don't wait until you're done with your research. It'll never happen. <laughs> so start putting pieces of your family history directly into your family's hands with a really beautiful family history book. Well, I hope you enjoyed that blast to the past. And I've got a few additional suggestions for you. You know, my blog has lots of inspiring posts with some really great how-tos on writing your family history. So on our homepage at genealogygems.com, just go to the topics menu and click the down arrow and scroll down, select writing family history from the list. 
and you will get a long running list of blog posts on that topic of writing your family history. So just start reading and get inspired. And if you're more interested in making a video than making a book, I'll put a link in the show notes to my free step-by-step instructions for using my favorite DIY video service, Animoto, to create your own short, really professional-looking videos. Hello, Genealogy Gems podcast listeners. This is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. I used to think that economics was just a series of numbers and calculations that helped to gauge the future growth of companies and countries. In a word, boring. But that was before I discovered that you can study the economics of people and essentially use math to describe human behavior and therefore in some ways make that behavior more predictable. This is, of course, especially intriguing to my current situation as the parent of a teenager, a preteen, and a daughter. Teenagers especially are always talking about the things that everyone else has, a phenomenon that Malcolm Gladwell, one of these interesting economists, describes as the tipping point. He says that the tipping point is the moment of critical mass, the threshold, the boiling point. For my kids, it's everything from the point at which a party becomes fun to doing everything that's humanly possible to procure a fidget spinner. If you don't know what that is, ask the nearest 11-year-old. In DNA testing in the United States, that tipping point is now. We have reached the point where most genealogists at least have heard of genetic genealogy and have the passing notion that this genetics can be useful in genealogy. Most genealogists, I would guess 85% that attend the lectures I give, have already had at least one DNA test completed. Let's stop for just one minute and recognize how incredible that is. Not too long ago, I was still trying to convince people that this was a good idea and that you didn't have to dig up your ancestors to do it. But now we have scores of genealogists that have not only tested themselves, but have convinced half their family to test as well. So this got me thinking, who are those people who haven't tested and why not? Are you one of them? One category of people sans DNA tests are those who have full pedigree charts. I have heard many of them say that they don't see the need to do DNA testing since they have most of their lines way back. To those with the blessing of ancestors who kept better records than mine, I'm offering four reasons why you should RSVP to your invitation to DNA test. So let's start with R, record or record. First and foremost, your DNA is a record that you must record. Just as you have obtained birth certificates and marriage licenses for your ancestors, your DNA is a unique record. It does represent you and your family in a way that no other record can. It is a document of your genetic history and should be preserved. Further, while you may doubt the ability of your DNA to shed light on your current genealogy, don't underestimate the contribution it might make in the future. Second is second cousins for the S in RSVP. So second cousins, well really, and third cousins and fourth cousins, etc. Having your DNA tested means you can see a biological connection between you and other relatives who have tested. For many, the idea of meeting or forming relationships with distant cousins is not appealing. But even if you have no intention of attending DNA family reunions or even in corresponding with those relatives, there is something reassuring about seeing them there on your match list. There's a certain thrill that comes with recognizing the connection between you and someone else, a connection that may or may not add any new names to your tree. But it helps you feel a deeper connection to your ancestor and a greater appreciation for your biology. Next up, the letter V. V is for verify. And that brings us to our next point. Seeing those cousins on your match list can actually help verify the genealogy you've already collected and documented. It helps to reassure you that you have made the right steps along the way, and it may help you gain additional resources about your relative through their descendants that you find on your match list. 
resources that can in turn help that ancestor go from a name on a chart to a story and a life worth preserving. And lastly, the P for philanthropy. The last reason to go ahead and have your DNA tested is to help others. If you have been lucky enough to fill in most of the blanks on your tree, you can help others do the same by simply having your DNA tested. Your DNA provides a link to your tree that might be just what someone needs to overcome a brick wall in their family history. So if you've been hanging out on the outskirts of DNA testing because you feel like your tree is full enough without it, remember to RSVP to your invitation to be DNA tested and join the party. If you have questions or want to talk to me about this further, you can always reach me by email at guide at your DNA guide. And until next time, this is Diane Southard, your DNA guide. Okay, have you visited backblaze.com slash Lisa yet? If you don't have cloud backup for your computer yet, everything on it is vulnerable to loss. Your pictures, your master genealogy database, files for work, the everyday business of your household, losing all that at once is as devastating as it sounds. That's why I did my homework and I found a cloud-based backup service provider. I chose Backblaze. It runs in the background 24-7 automatically saving copies of everything, including my precious video files. Did you know that some of the other leading services actually skip your video files when they do the backup? Hello, not good. And Backblaze is so easy to use. I love their free app that allows me to access all my files if I need to from my smartphone or my tablet. Most importantly, the service is totally affordable for real people. It's just $5 a month. So don't wait to ensure that all your files are safe. Do it now. Back them up like I do with Backblaze. Head over to backblaze.com slash Lisa and get that $5 a month deal. Check it out for yourself. You could even do a free trial. That's backblaze.com slash Lisa. MyHeritage.com is your home for global genealogy research. The site boasts the most geographically diverse membership in the world, with a strong presence in many European countries. Search for cousin connections worldwide among more than 86 million people on a site that operates in over 40 languages. Powerful proprietary search technologies at MyHeritage.com dig deeper and with greater accuracy into billions of historical records and online trees. This is the only major genealogy website that offers automated hinting on possible matches in digitized historical newspapers. And now MyHeritage offers autosomal DNA testing too. They're jumpstarting their DNA database by inviting members to upload their own and by sponsoring tests in certain parts of the world. I'm looking forward to the geographical diversity I anticipate from their DNA data. So head on over to myheritage.com and expand your global genealogy research. That's myheritage.com. Gems listeners, it's Sunny Morton, editor and book club guru here at the podcast. Last month, we announced the new Genealogy Gems book club title, Murder in Matera by Helene Stapinski. Helene is a journalist who is on the trail of her own family story. The legend says her first Italian immigrant ancestor to the U.S. fled Italy with her children in tow in the wake of a murder. Helene has gathered several clues, and she's decided to take her mother and her two small children to Italy to uncover the rest of the story. As you'll see in the passage I'm about to read, her plans turn out to be a little naive, and I wonder how many of us have ever embarked on any family history research story with the same sense of anticipation and expectation for a speedy conclusion, only to find answers, or not, 
in a very different way than we expected. Here's a reading from Murder in Matera by Helene Stepinski. It would be fun, I told myself and my mother. We'll rent a house in the town of Bernalda, spend some time on the beach in nearby Metaponto, eat some gelato. We can poke around a little and talk to the locals, do some archival research. My mother was 73 and had never been to Italy or anywhere, really, and had never tasted gelato. It was time she had an adventure. We would be the first in four generations to visit the town of our ancestors on the arch of Italy's boot. Vita had left and had never looked back, and neither had her children or grandchildren or even her great-grandchildren. I had no idea that I would cross the Atlantic again and again, that this trip was the beginning of an odyssey that would take me through ancient painted caves over green volcanic mountains to dusty archives to dead ends and the edges of cliffs and to a valley of death where all the drama began. I had no clue about the isolated world I was stepping into or how long it would actually take to find Vita's true story, a story more tragic and eventually more triumphant than anything I could have imagined. How could I have known there was something hidden at the end of my ten-year journey that would change my view of my children altogether, that would make me question my very own identity, that in the end I would discover one shotgun blast and five dead bodies, most of them belonging to my family? The book is Murder in Matera, a true story of passion, family, and forgiveness in southern Italy by Helene Stepinski, and it is our Genealogy Gems book club pick of the quarter. Enjoy! If you're like me, sometimes the most fun part of your research is the rabbit holes. You know, the detours you purposefully take just because something looks really interesting. In the following segment, originally recorded back in 2007, the first year of Genealogy Gems 10 years ago, I follow my curiosity about my great-grandfather's car from the 1920s. Google research led me into the fascinating world of automotive history and one of our great national pastimes in the U.S., driving. And after playing this segment, I am going to add a few new thoughts about Googling history and how far it's come. of Family Tree Magazine, and there was an article called Motor Trends. It was about gleaning genealogical information from old family photos that include cars. The article suggested that you could learn a lot about the time frame that the picture may have been taken based on the make and the year of the car. They even suggested comparing the car's features with automotive reference guides to pinpoint the manufacturing date and model in order to date the photo and possibly determine the geographic area if it's unknown. But what really caught my eye was the fact that by 1918, all states had adopted license and registration laws. It was recommended that you look for a license plate in the photo, which can give a year, place, and get this, even possibly the owner's initials. Well, immediately I remembered that I have a photograph of my grandmother as a teenager, and she's standing beside the newly purchased family car. She even wrote about it in her diary. October 21st, 1929. Went to Sunday school, and when I got back, there was our new car waiting for me. Willie's night. I drove it all around, went and gave Evelyn a ride. Made Mama mad. I raced to pull up the photo to see if the plate was visible. And it was, but unfortunately, it was so dark I couldn't read it at all. My guess is that this is probably the situation in most cases when someone has a photo of a car. 
So that makes it pretty hard to pursue the license plate angle. Well, later that night, I was watching a TV show called Forensic Files on Court TV. And I think I like the show so much because it's real life puzzles being solved, which is really a lot like genealogy. On this episode, the crime scene investigators had gone through a suspect's car, but they didn't find anything. And their last attempt to find evidence was to use an alternative light source. And this entails turning off all the lights and shining various alternative lights, such as a black light, on the area being investigated. And sure enough, they found critical evidence. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if I could just apply an alternative light source to that photograph so I could see the license plate? Suddenly I got an idea and I jumped up and I ran to my computer. Now first, I opened up the basic photograph editing software that came with my computer. And in my case, that's Adobe Photo Deluxe. Then I pulled up the photograph of Grandma and the car. I used the trim feature to zoom in on the license plate. And I just used the tool to draw around the plate area and then cut it out. And now the remaining photo was just the license area. Next, I zoomed in to make it easier to see what I was working on. Now, to apply my version of an alternate light source. I first tried increasing the brightness of the photo since it was so dark, and this helped a little bit. I just tried adjusting the contrast and soon found that by playing the two together, I got a pretty good result. What once was a blob of darkness now read 2L6724. So I added a final touch of auto sharpen, which defined it even more. And I was thrilled with my CSI tool. Well, there was something printed under the license plate number, but I couldn't quite read it. It looked like Cal 29, like C-A-L 29, which would make sense because they had lived in California. And the year that uh, Grandma said she, that they bought the car in her diary was 1929. Well, you know me by now, I had to find out, so it was back to the internet. From my iGoogle homepage, I typed in the search box, Old California License Plates. And there were several results, but most of them looked kind of like stores. But the right kind of store might prove useful. And I did find one that said, California License Plates, New and Old Classic. I decided to give it a try, and sure enough, they had a category called Pre-1956 Plates. I clicked on the link and the first replica plate that they had for sale answered my question. The replica 1929 license plate read 8M7547 and under it, it said Cal 29. So there I had it, Cal 29. And thanks to worldlicenseplates.com, I was even able to determine that the license plate in my black and white photo actually would have been a black background with orange lettering. Now, does this change the course of history? No, but it was a heck of a lot of fun to know, and it's exciting to discover these little gems. Well, this plate got me wondering, when did California introduce the license plate? Was it as late as 1918, as they were mentioned in the magazine article? So I went back and I typed California license plate history into the Google search box, and I found that the California Department of Motor Vehicles website could answer my question. The website states, California has required license plates on vehicles since 1905, and many plate variations have been developed since that time. Well, state statutes of 1901 authorized cities and counties to license bicycles, tricycles, automobiles, carriages, carts, and any other kind of wheeled vehicles. Owners had to pay a $2 fee, and they were issued a circular tag. And later, those tags were either octagonal or had scalloped edges. Owners had to conspicuously display the tags in the vehicle. So by 1905, registered vehicles in California totaled over 17,000. Well, this got me curious. Could I access records associated with my great-grandfather's license plate and automobile registration? Now, typically, states move records of this age to their state archives. So I googled California State Archives to quickly access the website, and there was nothing under the heading of collections. So I tried a variety of keyword searches in their online catalog. After a couple of attempts, I had success with the search on driver records. And listed in the catalog was one item called motor vehicle records. Date of records, 1905 to 1913, 61 volumes. Although these records were too early for my use, I did find a clue in the description that said, 
motor vehicle records, 1913 transferred these functions from the Secretary of State's office to the Department of Engineering. You know, there's actually two clues there. Number one is the department that likely kept the records for my time frame, which was later in 1929, and the phrase motor vehicle records. This is actually the phrase to probably do a search on. So I tried it and I got 13 results. Now, unfortunately, none of these records included 1929. So I've sent an email off to the state archives to ask for their assistance. Stay tuned to hear what happens on that. As for the car itself, I knew from Grandma's diary it was a Willie's night, and I wondered if I could nail down the make and the model. So back to the internet I went, and sure enough, there are some Willie's night enthusiasts out there with some terrific websites. Paul Young's Willie's Overland Night Registry website had just what I was looking for. The site features dozens of photographs of all the different makes and models of Willie's night automobiles in chronological order. So I scrolled down to the late 1920s, and I compared each photo to the photo of my great-grandfather's car. Bingo! The 1928 Willie's Night 78 Cabriolet Coupe America matched the car to a T. Everything from the convertible roof, the headlights, the bumper, the side view mirrors, they all matched up. Well, from there, I clicked on the Willie's Night history link, which led to not only a written history of Willie's Night, but it had a chart of Willie's Night specifications. And a quick scroll down led me to the specs for Grandpa's 1928 70A series car. And I learned that Great Grandpa's car was introduced in August of 1927 for the starter price of $1,295. Now, for those of you on the newsletter subscriber list, you've received my This Week's Genealogy Gem, iGoogle Gadget, which this week in July of 2007 features an inflation calculator. So try plugging in 1927 and the cost of $1,295 to find out what the car would have cost in today's money. I also learned that the car was a six-cylinder, as well as specs on the horsepower, the wheelbase, and even the range of serial numbers that the car would have fallen within. So let me tell you, this website was jammed packed with everything you could ever want to know about the Willie's Night car. It was very cool. Now, obviously, knowing this amount of detail about the car that my grandmother is standing next to in my photograph isn't necessary. But boy, was it fascinating and it was fun. And if you have a photo or info on one of your ancestors' cars and you'd like to learn more, check out the show notes for this episode number 18 at genealogygemspodcast.com. Since I first published this episode, iGoogle has gone away, but Google searching has become even more powerful and web resources have certainly multiplied, though some websites, of course, have also gone away. So a quick search today shows me there are several sites for identifying old cars. Two of them are hubcapcafe.com, Collectors Car Resources, and there's a Flickr group called Vintage Car Identification, which is for the truly stumped because here, a group of old car enthusiasts help you identify vehicles in old pictures. And I've got to tell you, they are pretty savvy about cars from around the world. I found this helpful terminology from itstillruns.com for those who are new to the world of old cars. And it says, quote, veteran cars were manufactured before 1903. Vintage cars were made between 1903 and 1933. And classic cars are considered to be vehicles manufactured from 1933 until 15 years ago. Hmm, I did not know that. <laughs> so that's from itstillruns.com, and I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And if you are a Genealogy Gems premium member, and I hope you are because we've got some great stuff going on over there, you'll know that in last month's premium podcast episode 149, we talked about Archive Grid and its enormous online catalog for archival collections. You can check that out. It's episode 149 in the premium podcast feed. Well, I searched Archive Grid with a variety of keyword combinations and I didn't find motor vehicle registrations. 
But I did find a collection of 1928 maps and guidebooks for the Automobile Club of Southern California held in the Brigham Young University Library in Provo, Utah, and a really cool-looking collection of thousands of images collected by the Automobile Club of Southern California, mostly in the 1920s and 1930s, which is at the Huntington Library in San Marino, California. So, If I was really going down this particular rabbit hole in my research, I'd have some very cool things to look at, right? See the show notes for the blog post on how to find original manuscripts and documents using Archive Grid, and then get the full details in premium podcast episode 149. The second edition of my book, The Genealogist Google Toolbox, which is where you're going to find all the tips that you need for using Google searches, like the ones that I've been talking about, it has an entire chapter on finding video content on YouTube. Now, I know we don't think of YouTube as a place for genealogy, but I got to tell you, it is. And I devoted a whole chapter to it because it really, really is. A quick YouTube search on Willie's Night 1928, brought up a short but cool video uploaded since I recorded this originally. Gosh, this video is from 2014. And it's called Take a Ride in a 1928's Willie Knight, made in, owned in, and driven in Toledo, Ohio. By the way, that show that I mentioned called Forensic Files Well, YouTube has an official Forensic Files channel where you can watch 14 seasons. Oh my gosh, talk about a rabbit hole. (laughs) You're going to enjoy it. I mean, just for the the puzzle solving aspect of it, it's, it's pretty cool. And of course, we do have our Genealogy Gems YouTube channel. So go to youtube.com slash genealogy gems. Make sure you click the subscribe button. We've got loads of great videos and check them out because they are sorted by playlist so you can get to the topic that you want. And then by being subscribed, you're going to find out about the new videos as soon as they happen. And see the show notes for more updates to the resources that I mentioned in this article, all of which I found fresh in 2017 by searching with Google. The Colorful History of California License Plates in LA Magazine. Uh, There was worldlicenseplates.com, California DMV license plate introduction. There's an article from the California State Archives, uh, the the Willie's Overland Night Registry website, and they have a Facebook page, and the inflation calculator. Now remember, you might be able to make some really great discoveries in old photos like I did with that license plate with your own photo editing software. doesn't have to be expensive or fancy. Uh, Whatever free software is on your computer can work. So let's summarize those tips. You want to open up the photo editing software, open the photo that's in question in your program, then use the zoom feature to zoom in on that license plate or whatever the feature is in the photograph that you want to see. Zooming in is going to make it a lot easier to get a really good view. And then try using the brightness and the contrast features of your photo editor program and use them in combination. Play with it a little bit. You can always click undo, but Playing with those brightness and contrast features can really help you zero in on what the right combination is to make it easier to see or read or identify what it is in the photo that you're looking at, like I did with the license plate. And then after you do that, apply a little bit of auto sharpen, and that's going to tighten up the picture a little bit, kind of bring out a little more detail. I'll also link to a couple of recent blog posts on my website that you might like on identifying old photos and photo editing tips for family history. There's two. um, One's called Savvy Tips to Help Identify Old Photos, and the other one is Photo Editing Apps and Software for Family History. That Family Tree Magazine article that I read on identifying old cars in photos is now available as a digital download on their website. It's called Motor Trends, and it's by my friend Maureen Taylor, whose book, 
The photo detective, it's really your ultimate guide to identifying old objects in pictures to kind of help you learn more about your family history. So I will link to both of those resources in the show notes. The following segment from Profile America seems the perfect way to end today's episode. It's about one of the most important inventions relating to the automobile industry. Can you guess what it is? And before I play it, I want to thank my production team for this episode. Sonny Morton helped me dig into the Genealogy Gems podcast archive for these blast from the past gems and get them updated. Hannah Fullerton has stepped up as our audio editor to cover for her sister during her maternity leave to take care of our to take care of sweet little Emily Jane. And of course, your DNA guide, Diane Southerd was here and sharing her genetic genealogy expertise. Now, let's hear from Profile America. Profile America, Friday, August 4th. In this first week of August, 102 years ago, American motorists got the green light to safely proceed through increasingly traveled crossroads. A traffic light system, credited with being the first in the U.S., flashed red and green at the intersection of 105th Street and Euclid Avenue in Cleveland, Ohio. To further prompt drivers, the words stop and move were emblazoned on the operating red and green lights. At the time, there were about 1.8 million motor vehicles in the U.S., six times more than just five years earlier. Now, there are over 260 million motor vehicles crowding our roads. Traffic lights control the flow of this congestion, leaving Americans with an average one-way commute of nearly 26 minutes. You can find more facts about America's people, places, and economy from the American Community Survey at census.gov. Oh, I hope you had fun in this episode, number 206 of the Free Genealogy Gems podcast. Hey, everybody, if you love the show, tell your friends. Tell your genealogy friends, the people in your genealogy society, go on Facebook and rave. You know, it's really nice when uh, you, you pour your heart and soul into something. It's, it's awful nice when people like it and share it. I so appreciate when you guys help get the word out. So thank you so much for doing that. That's awfully nice. And if you listen through iTunes or something like Apple's podcast app, I would love if you'd go in and give us a nice rating. They have a five-star rating in there, and we would love to receive that. You know, when you guys go in and rate and comment the podcast, that helps other people who go into iTunes or the podcast app to find us because we rise to the top as one of the good ones, a keeper, if you will, in the podcasting world. So thank you so much for doing that for us. We, we so appreciate it. You guys are awesome. You're family. Thank you so much for joining me here today. And thanks for listening, friend. I'll talk to you soon.